This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 88. Today's special guest is Dr. Andrea Feifel. We talk with Andrea about all things interprofessional, including the progress that's been made in interprofessional collaborative practice and interprofessional education, the influencing factors impacting both, and the biggest barriers. Stay tuned. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking the missing logic in healthcare to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Well, hello, everyone. It's Michelle. And guess what? It's Tracy, too. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering who'd show up with her today, it's me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i didn't bring another co-host on the show with me today no yeah, it's, you're not getting rid of me girlfriend <laughs> just in case you're wondering out there well you know hey we say the same thing every time so i'm just trying to shake some stuff up this is my year to be scrappy so there you go watch out folks <laughs> uh well just in case you don't know where you're at yeah. <laughs> you're you're at another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And oh, we have, you know, just another wonderful interview for all of you listeners out there. Oh, this is a special one because this is near and dear to our hearts, right? Like we grew up on this stuff, right? <clears throat> and yes. We've been doing interprofessional collaborative practice for, oh gosh, 30 years, right? It started yeah. with both of us at the bedside. It and did. Our passion just grew and grew and grew. And so watching what's happened across the country and the people that are leading it. Right. It's been amazing. And having Andrea here today was just really phenomenal. Yeah. And I'll tell you what she did, which I thought was so awesome, is she kind of gave the state of affairs of what's happening in interprofessional education and collaborative practice just so succinctly. Like it's just, wow, that's it. That's where we've been and that's where we are. And um, she did a beautiful job. Yeah, she did. And she's such a genuine soul. It's really easy to engage with her and, uh, And I think what will shine through is just not only her knowledge around what's happening, but her passion and her intentions, right, for advancing this across the country and her, just her clear desire to contribute. Yes, um, yeah. And to to serve the students and the patients and families and communities. Exactly. You know, and I feel like uh, the interprofessional education and collaborative practice world has been greatly enhanced by her leadership and it's exciting that she's going to be leading on a national stage now with her upcoming role at the National Academies of Practice. And um, 
I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen in the future. But for today, it's all about where are we at today. So That's right. <clears throat> so without further hesitation here, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Andrea Feifel. Dr. Feifel is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Interprofessional Practice and Education for The Ohio State University Health Sciences Colleges and Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Feifel has published and presented more than 200 manuscripts, book chapters, abstracts, workshops, seminars to advance interprofessional practice and education. And prior to coming to The Ohio State University, Dr. Feifel was Associate Dean and Inaugural Director of Indiana University's Interprofessional Practice and Education Center and the Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Adjunct Associate Professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Physical Therapy. Like, wow, right? Mm -hmm. she, um, she also has, re she received her education doctorate in educational leadership and administration from the University of Kentucky. She's devoted most of her professional life to moving the art and science of interprofessional education, collaboration and teamwork forward in a very rapidly changing healthcare landscape, right? And has had special emphasis on research elucidating best practices. Dr. Feifel is a distinguished scholar and fellow in the National Academies of Practice. And in 2017, she received the American Interprofessional Health Collaborative Scholar Award. In 2019, she led the uh, Indiana University IPE Center to receive the Association of Schools of Allied Health Professions Excellence and Innovation in Interprofessional Education and Practice Award. And in 2020, she received the Indiana University Presidential Bicentennial Medal for her impact on the local, global, and international community. Wow. I'm not done yet, folks. Here we go. <laughs> Among other service and leadership activities, Dr. Feifel chairs the American Interprofessional Health Collaborative Advisory Board and the National Academies of Practice Physical Therapy Academy. Recently, she was elected as president-elect of the National Academies of Practice. She actively participates in a number of other professional organizations and advisory boards, including interprofessional.global, interprofessionalresearch.global, the American Physical Therapy Association, and the Canadian Interprofessional Health Collaborative. So we're talking with a phenomenal leader. And without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Fife. Welcome, Andrea. We're just so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we, we just love to chatting with you and I can't wait for you to share your wisdom with our listeners. Oh, good. <laughs> now, we know you know a little bit about work-life balance. You're an extremely busy lady, right? And so I think it would really help our listeners if you could share a few of your self-care hacks. So how do you take care of yourself in the midst of your busyness? So if anyone is listening that knows me, they're going to laugh that you asked me that question because <laughs> they well know this has been a lifelong journey for me and I'm still on it. But I, a couple of truths I've really come to understand about myself is that relationships are really key for me. It all starts and stops there. So if I'm tending to my relationships, then um, that's really the 
that's one of the tending to myself having my private time and and also tending to my private time in my relationships it's just really that's ground zero for me um i love to spend time with with people um, in my family and just friends and and even people out in the community that i really align with in terms of the things that they care about so that feeds my soul i also am very much a tennis enthusiast and i like to do try to do something physical every day tennis yoga um even even covid even in covid i try to get out and do something walk run um just I change it up almost every day but those are things that are really that's sort of I tell myself if I'm not doing those two things taking care of relationships and spending some time doing something physical every day then I'm probably no good to anybody <laughs> <laughs> well you know it starts with knowing yourself right and knowing what does feed your soul and what makes the most the biggest difference I think we think we have to do a lot of things to take care of ourselves when I think what you're just sharing is boil it down to the things that matter most and do those things, right? Right. Everything else goes from there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Now, truth be told, we've been following you and your work in interprofessional healthcare arena for years. And uh, it's been such a joy to get to know you better and to work with you more closely over the last couple of years. Now, can you start by telling our listeners like how you first got engaged in interprofessional education and practice and and what lit the fire underneath you to do this? Sure thing. And truth be told, I've been following your all's work as well for, for years. I was just looking at marveling at how many episodes you've had in Missing Logic now. So um, congratulations on that. Um, you know, I'm a physical therapist. And so I'd like to share just a little bit about that part of my journey because it really was the beginning of my love affair with interprofessional collaboration and bringing that to our learners. Um, I was drawn to physical therapy through experiences that I had in high school with a really dear friend that I'll, I'll call Jimmy. Um, Jimmy was 11 years old when I met him, and he was just this precious, um, engaging, smart, um, just excited little boy. He also had um, was living with cerebral palsy, and so he had been diagnosed um, very shortly after birth, and he it affected everything. His body movement is very hard to understand what he said. He had very little muscle control or coordination, and he needed help with every everything that he did. Um, as a result, he was wheelchair bound and um, often ended up in the hospital um, over several times each year. I was volunteering at a nearby children's hospital uh, called Cardinal Hill Hospital, which has changed names, but still has a very active um, children's children's wing in it. And I volunteered there on the weekends. And to do that, I needed special training because of the severity of illness of the kids, um, even though I was really just sort of functioning as a volunteer aide. But as a result, Jimmy and I got to know each other well over time. So I always looked forward to, um, to this time that we would spend together in between other duties that I had. And though I was sad he was in the hospital, he was just a treasure to me. And through that process, I got to meet his parents. He was living at home um, when he wasn't hospitalized and mom and dad took care of everything everything and their life was dramatically different they were very young and it was clear that they were very stressed and and just didn't have very much of a, um, a life quite frankly they couldn't leave Jimmy their family wasn't here and so the only time that they had to do anything as a couple or even for themselves really was when he was hospitalized and of course they were 
consumed with worry and providing care for him even in that circumstance. So I um, ended up babysitting for Jimmy. Every every Friday night I would show up and they knew that I was coming and and that was sort of my gift and it, it fed me as well. And as a result, I was drawn to physical therapy, uh, working with Jimmy, working with, um, I even helped with some of his care and rehab when he was in the hospital and in between helped his, his parents understand um, how to carry through with the care, the care plan that was in place. Uh, and it became very clear clear to me when I got into physical therapy school that I was not going to be able to do all the wonderful things I wanted to do to help Jimmy and other people like him, that it was well outside the scope of what physical therapy could do, should do, and what I was able to know. And so that really, by necessity, is what drove me to reach out and learn as much as I could about other partners that could help make his life and other kids like him make their lives better. And so I made it my mission to figure it out. So every time a a wicked problem came up that we didn't know what to do with, whether it be adapting a wheelchair or gaining services or figuring out how he could participate in school activities, I just reached as far as I had to to help his family figure that out. And so um, that was... That was how I got started, and that's really where I've stayed all of my career. I'm happy to say that I, I did finish PT school, and I've loved loved my career, but it's never been enough for me to stay in that silo. Um, and I think as a result, it's shaped my really my expectations of learners and of, of the healthcare um, system. One of the things that, that I did really expected that would be very different for me when I got into PT school is that, um, that I would have all the tools that I needed, and I, I, just, I just didn't have that. So I then took a job, went into practice. 10 years, 15 years later, I'm at the University of Kentucky as a faculty member, and um, I get called into the dean's office in medicine, the dean of medicine, which wasn't my home department, and uh, and I'm scared out of my mind because I've been a rebel, as I've said, all the way through my academic career and my practice career, and I thought outside the box and just was constantly pulling different people, partners into the work that I was doing or work that I was invited to do, and so I knew I was in trouble, and that wasn't the fact at all. He was inviting me to lead with him an initiative initiative at the University of Kentucky to start an interprofessional education um, initiative is what we called it at the time. We didn't really think of it as a center or anything. And that um, that just sort of launched me and changed, changed my world forever. I never went back to a uniprofessional uh, setting again. That was a smart move on his part. <laughs> well, yes. he might not have thought so. As I said, I was a bit of a rebel at times. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Andrea, for sharing that incredible story. And, you know, when we ask, you know, what lit your fire, it's kind of cool. It came from one person. And it just shows you the power of volunteering. I, that was in your story. And just, um, you know, we always like to say that people that we never forget are our greatest teachers. And certainly Jimmy was in your life for a reason. I just, I, I just marvel at how one thing can lead to so many things in your life. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a phenomenal story. Yeah. Thank you, Jimmy. Yeah. yeah, indeed. The good news is Jimmy did end up growing, um, growing into a, living independently um, with with a lot of help. But at least he was able to move out and have his own place. So that's that's been a fun thing to watch as well. Oh yeah, great, great, great. Well, how would you describe the progress to advance interprofessional education and practice over? Let's just bring it down to the last ten years, Andrea. Oh, gosh. You know, that's an interesting time point to start at because so much has happened in the last um, 15 years. But taking back, taking us back just 10 years ago, I was thinking about this um, just this morning and 
10 years ago was when the um, Lancet report came out, right? It was yeah. uh, in 2010 and 2011, uh, the uh, first interprofessional education collaborative competencies for interprofessional collaborative care were released. And so um, a lot has happened in 10 years. So I would say almost mind boggling. Now I know folks, some skeptics would disagree with me, but if you really back up and look at where we started and what's been achieved in the last 10 years, it's been really um, incredible. I think it's also been trial by fire to some extent, and we've had some, you know, fits and starts for sure. We've got a long way to go, but I do think that we have transformed health professions education so that in a professional collaboration is a piece of what we do now. Think about how many different accrediting bodies now require in a professional education that didn't 10 years ago. Think about how many universities and colleges and programs at the very least have someone designated to lead the work around interprofessional education. Think about the formation of the National Center for Interprofessional Practice and Education, which was in what, 2012, um, and, and so many other things that we could talk about that have really just bubbled up in the last 10 years. So I think in many ways we should be celebrating yeah, we would agree. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, so just for anybody who doesn't know, this is this has been <laughs> a long, long journey, right? We're talking 50, 60 years of effort. Mm -hmm. And in the last 10, right, we've had this massive amount of progress. So it's like, you know, pushing that boulder up the hill for all those years and finally getting that momentum, right? So you can't wait to see what happens now, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of these are significant foundational elements that needed to be in place to have to gain that momentum, don't you think? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, and it's hard to know which one was the tipping point. You know, you think about what really leaned us into this work, and it was so many. It was really the culmination of so many important pieces of work and a lot of a lot of hard knocks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, if you so, we know nationally these are things that have occurred that have made a significant difference. But are there other? factors that you think have fostered interprofessional education and practice? Like, are there other elements, maybe more at the more local level? Well, I think that um, this is very Pollyannish, but I honestly think it's the right thing to do. It just intuitively feels like the right way to, to provide care and experience care and well-being. Um, so it's, it's easy to line up behind it. In fact, I've never found it difficult to to gain champions in this area because it, it's, it, it just works. Mm -hmm. It truly works. The outcomes are better. Um, we have more confidence in, in moving forward and we, we just have a better product. So I think that that helps. Um, I also think that we've had a lot of key stakeholders line up in the last um, 10 years that we quite frankly just didn't have um, all together in the same space. Uh, so we've we, leaders in higher education, even those that didn't necessarily know what interprofessional education or weren't even in healthcare, could see the value and in many ways have lined up to help make this happen. Um, there's to the patients and clients and communities, it makes perfect sense. And they've been wondering why we didn't figure it out sooner, honestly. Um, 
faculty who teach in this way have good experiences for the most part when they're left to teach the way they think they need to teach when they're working with interprofessional groups of learners. Uh, and there's a whole other side to this, I know. But um, we had an initiative in Kentucky more than 10, eh, about 10 years ago that's still in place. And it really just started, it was one of the first things that we tried. And it's still in place because the fact, and very little, um, very little loss of faculty. And in fact, many deans have come to the table to help teach the small groups because it was such a positive experience when they really just rolled their, their sleeves up with learners to talk about important issues in the community and what they could do together to, um, to make a difference. So um, I think other things that have definitely, you know, there, there's a lot of hard, hard work that spurred, spurred this forward as well. The WHO report, as I said, the Lancet report, the IPET competencies, where would we be without the Interprofessional Education Collaborative and its 2011 um, version of the competencies that was revised in 2016. I think we're about due for another revision and that frames so much of the conversation. It gave us a vocabulary. It gave us um, a common vision as to what we were teaching this, why we were going to the trouble of teaching, you know, these, these skills. Uh, it, it formed the basis in many ways for our thoughts around assessment. So that was really important work. As I mentioned earlier, the formation of the National Center for Interprofessional Practice and Education, huge, really huge. We were all desperate for that kind of support and, and they continue to give that to us to this day. The addition of accreditation requirements we talked about earlier, um, that's pretty new if you think about it. I mean, and, and almost all health professions education programs now uh, include some language around the need for their learners to have interprofessional learning experiences. And you can't forget the funding initiatives that went along with this. I mean, think about all about Josiah Macy and, and John Hartford Foundation and Robert Wood Johnson and HRSA grants and many, many others that uh, really enabled that early work by giving us money to move, move educational models and practice models forward and then you know numerous reports so i mean again that's just in the last 10 years and how many a new journal the journal for interprofessional education and practice comes out of the national academies of practice with elsevier think about i mean if you could just count the number of manuscripts that have been published um that work at the individual and team level on a local and local area coming out of the local and state and national and international arena very, very important. Um, and then I, new organizations, right? The American Interprofessional Health Collaborative was just started um, somewhere around 2011, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I may have that year wrong, but it was just about that time. And then um, National Academies of Practice um, aligning much of its energy around interprofessional education and practice and advocacy for those things uh, and so many others. I mean, it's just impossible to really capture all of the things that have happened that have moved us forward, I think. Well, that was a great synthesis. Yeah. Of, it really uh, was. I mean, wow. I, I'm sure I left something out. <laughs> well, I don't know how you could have. <laughs> but I think, you know, for those that aren't in it, are in this space on an ongoing basis, they really don't know. That's why it's so important for you to share with our listeners, you know, what has been happening um, and all of these different, um, you know, components that are contributing, right, to the advancement. Mm -hmm. of this. It's such an important, um, well, it's an essential part of healthcare. It is. It is. Essential component of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so I think it just really helps to run that down. Now, 
that doesn't go to say there aren't some barriers, right? So <laughs> we talk about what's helped in advance, what's holding it back, right? What What do you see as some of the biggest barriers to having interprofessional education and practice really as the standard of healthcare? I mean, we're making advancements, but it isn't necessarily mainstream everywhere. And so what's holding that back? Oh, gosh, how long do we have, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Bar Barbara Brand and colleagues wrote an article called The Gordian Knot of Interprofessional yeah. Education. Um, it, it really is a Gordian Knot. So in no particular order, I'll just shoot from the hip. But I, I, I do want to start with something that we haven't talked a lot about until at least I haven't heard a lot of conversations about this until more recently. And that is the implicit bias that undergirds our um, healthcare system and has shaped many of the um, decisions and, and the structure of healthcare. Uh, really, uh, really important models, uh, influence on the models of care and reimbursement. And so I think we need, we got to have some frank discussions about the assumptions we're making about privilege and access and, um, and and those are deeply embedded in in the work that we do and they really do hold us back because interprofessional collaborative care is really about the right care at the right time you know for the you know, for people that need it you know it, it's very much a, a, a way of leveling the playing field to address to provide integrated care and address as many of the needs as it's appropriate to address at that time with a patient or a client um, or with a community. And so, again, you have to get rid of those hierarchical structures. Um, I think other things that stand in the way, um, I think it's just hard. You know, Michelle and Tracy, this is some of the hardest work. I, I mean, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it just is. It's never, it doesn't get easier. It's a constant, it needs constant care and feeding. I mean, mm -hmm. the people that are engaged in, in, in team care, the people that are supporting it, uh, the people learning it, the people that are receiving that care, we all need constant uh, attention to to draw out what our needs are and how we're doing. You've got to pay attention to process as well as product. You've got to um, step back and evaluate and reflect on whether you're getting where you need to go, uh, whether it's the right place at the right time, you know, for you to go with care. And so it's tremendously resource intensive, which is another barrier. It's really not so simple as just adding everybody together into a huge room and seeing, you know, what they can do to solve a case. Real interprofessional care and education is about a level of honesty and humility and vulnerability that um, we're not always ready for and don't know how to do. And so, again, that constant um, being willing to learn, teachable, willing to help to be part of the teacher, be the teacher as well as the learner, um, and part of a community that's really striving for a high, high bar that is very difficult to maintain. Um, on a more practical level, I mean, I think scalability is a big issue. A really big issue. So when we started this work, I mean, I often say we started out asking if we should do interprofessional education. And then it was, can we do it? And then it was, um, you know, how can we do it? And, you know, and then why did we say we wanted to do this? You know, <laughs> but when we finally got to the place where we had these massive, at these large universities, massive groups of health professions learners who, who now needed to have an interprofessional learning experience and beyond, we're talking thousands of people and our higher education is really not built for that kind of education anymore until 
COVID, which thankfully opened up the playing field for us to try some new things, um, some of which have worked and some of which haven't. But a big barrier, I think, is the, the scalability of the work that we set out to do. It's the old, be careful what you ask for. Right. And we wanted to, we wanted permission to do this. And then when we started doing it, we had so many learners that um, to teach and assess and facilitate that it's a very, very challenging to move that forward. Um, and then, you know, when you get into the interprofessional practice world, our reimbursement system is very much siloed, you know, and, and it doesn't lend itself well. It's not that it can't be done, but it doesn't lend itself well to, to, team care or to thinking about how to provide care from multiple providers in one incident at one in, in one time period um, and follow-up is very challenging when you get outside medicine to get reimbursement for so there's a lot in the policy and reimbursement arena that we need to um, we really need to keep working on and then the last thing I would say is because of that practice the practice world may not be it may not be as obvious in the practice world as we'd like it to be for our learners that in a professional collaboration is happening though i maintain it does happen more than we think or more than we that oftentimes i've heard it said i mean almost on a monthly basis if not more often we're training our learner or teaching our learners to practice in a world that isn't there yet and i would disagree with that there is interprofessional collaboration happening it's just that we have to learn how to see it you know, just like you have to learn how to listen and you have to learn how to how to, to really empathize and understand what folks are saying to you. You also have to be trained to see where interprofessional collaboration is happening or could be happening. And then you have to really press into that to enable it. And so um, it's just not as obvious as it as we'd like it to be so that our learners go, oh, great, I'm being taught to blank. And they go out there and point at it and they can see that that's, that's the benefit of what they've been doing. So those are some of the things that I think that are barriers. Well, and I, and to your point about the interprofessional practice environment, I think we have to remember too that the clinicians that are practicing today didn't have the advantages of interprofessional education. I would say probably 80, at least 80% of them, and because you've got new graduates over the last 10 years that have been coming out as the programs have been stronger, but still the majority, the vast majority of the healthcare workers today were not trained to be interprofessional. So, while there is collaboration happening, it may not be to the extent of what new learners have learned is possible and is essential to strong interprofessional collaborative practice, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we've got collaboration happening and I agree with you. I'm sure there's pockets of it and people are doing it. They just don't even know, right, what it is or how to strengthen it. I think a lot of the benefits that you've brought forth of, you know, a lot of the things that have happened have really strengthened the education piece of it. But I think the gap, in my perspective, has been in the practice arena and getting that continuing education and the strength for the current workforce elevated, right? So the two are in sync. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. It's interesting because I think we started, well, at least 10, 15 years ago, our impression was that the practice world was ahead of the education world in this. Um, and I would agree with your comment very much so that maybe in education we've moved to a different place and, and not integrated our practice partners the way that that we need to going forward. Well, yeah. and you would hope, like, you know, we're always looking for the silver lining in COVID. <laughs> Where's the silver lining in COVID, right? There's got to be one here somewhere. Yeah. But it's taking teams 
to deliver the care today, right? Teams that have worked together in ways they never had to work together before. So the hope might be COVID could advance that. Right. And the need for it and somebody to lead it, right? And to organize it and structure it. more. Mm -hmm. The other thing that COVID points us to is that the team is not just limited to those in the healthcare system. Think of how widespread these initiatives have had to be coordinated and the, the level of communication and skill that has been necessary and even the values and ethics around how we make decisions around limited numbers of vaccines or who gets in first and who gets, I mean, it, it's really a wonderful demonstration of why it is so critical that we think globally and we think systemically and, and understand how to reach across these boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was listening to you, Andrea, too, about the vigilance that it takes, um, all I could think about is it's because interprofessional education collaborative practice is packed full of so many polarities and you're living them every single day, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, just uh, teaching and learning, right? You have to do both um, individual and team. You have to do both um, hierarchy and partnership. And, and I think it's such intense focus work of what you're trying to achieve that you're really feeling that vigilance to make that happen. So I was really struck by that too um, in your comments. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. the concept of polarities as they're applied to interprofessional education and practice and collaborative practice because you're absolutely right. And what I love about the polarities construct, as I understand it, which is not my, my forte, but what the way that I think of it is both are necessary in order to strengthen the other. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and, and the and is that combination, just like an interprofessional collaboration, right? What you become yeah. together, what a polarity looked at as a whole is it's so much greater than either end exactly and when you think about the challenges and moving it forward there's polarities in that and people uh -huh. hang on to what they value and they have fears about the opposite pole mm -hmm. right so when we think about reimbursement there's a number of polarities in there people don't recognize mm -hmm. them right but the whole way forward is to unwrap that to peel back the layers of that to understand what are the benefits of shifting to, to a reimbursement, right? That is, that is more encompassing, right? For all the things that a team needs to provide versus keeping it in that siloed, um, you know, kind of type of reimbursement. So, and it's understanding those fears, right? Because it's of the fears that hold us back, right? It's what we don't know and what we don't understand um, that holds us back and holds us hanging on to the pull that we value most. So there's, Polarities can be used in a lot of ways to unwrap a lot of the challenges as well as the benefits. Yeah. yeah. You all have a lifetime of work ahead of you. We do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> you like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing that I often say is the system is perfectly designed to get the results the system is getting. And so it's it's fear, but it's also just these really strong structural barriers. And I, again, I'm, I'm an academic and a practitioner, um, but most recently I spend most of my time in academics. And so I, we're working with the construct of space. And what yeah. is space? You mentioned COVID has changed our thought about that, but physical space, what does it need to be to teach in a professional collaboration? Great if it's in the community and in a clinic, but there are ways to reach into the clinics and communities from the campus or from a classroom if the classroom is constructed differently than yeah. a traditional classroom. Mm -hmm. So again, we have, um, you know, we, we just, we find a structure and we just press into it so hard as a culture that we have a hard time getting uh, unentrenched. Yeah. 
Well, it's that continuity and transformation, right? It's the, the stability and the change that needs to happen, right? The things that you know you need that you'd have to maintain because this is the essence of it. But then what's the part that needs to change? What's the transformative pieces of education that will take us to that, you know, that higher level of learning, right? That higher level of interprofessional experience. Yeah. Same thing yeah. happens with teaching effort, right? It's much easier to stand in front of a room and push content out than it is to design experiences where yeah. learners are more dynamic and you can't control what happens. Exactly. Yeah, that's another great example. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrea, sometimes language and terminologies can also be barriers to advancements of work. And um, Tracy and I are both members of the National Academies of Practice of NAP yeah. um, ourselves. And so we're familiar with the excellent work you led with NAP on developing a common lexicon for consistency. And while this work was specific to NAP, can you share with our listeners the benefit of having a you know, common language or a common lexicon to advance collective work? And then we can also, we're also going to refer to this work in our show notes as well. Oh, great. Good. You know, I was, um, we just had a, a meeting in the National Academies of Practice, um, and they um, just two nights ago where this was illustrated and we were trying to come up with the, the value added, which Michelle, I think you were there, um, the value added of being a member of that organization. And we struggled so with the words and words do matter. I believe deeply that words do matter. And the lexicon, because we had one, we could go back to the lexicon and say, wait a minute, what do we mean collectively? What we, We've had these conversations before. What do we mean collectively when we talk about a patient? for example, versus a client. Um, and so the need for a lexicon em emerges. I love that, uh, that um, the story of the story of Babel, right? Where everyone ends up speaking a different language. And that's in many ways what happens. I think about my first foray into medicine as an educator. And I can't, I just sat there with my mouth open at the number of acronyms that were being thrown around and the, the, the assumptions that were made about language that even though I came from a, a from physical therapy and had a good background in, in medical terminology and understood most of what they said, I had no idea about the head nodding and, you know, and what they were really talking about. So what a lexicon does is it levels the playing field. Um, it facilitates conversations that are really important on the front end about what are the things that we agree to together, like what is interprofessional. How is that different than interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary? Who is the patient? What is the client then? And if you're a veterinarian, that's very different than if you are a physical therapist for humans, right? Um, and so it, it, it spawned important conversations and then brought us to a place where we agreed ar around a beginning, a start for how we would use the key words and phrases that come up in National Academies of Practice in our work internally as well as our external facing work. But Michelle, you can add, and Tracy, you all can add to that because you've been part of the National Academies of Practice in terms of how you think that might be helpful. Yeah, well, we definitely see a need for um, common language. And a lot of the work that Tracy and I have done in publishing on interprofessional education and collaborative practice, you know, we have obviously used some of the main sources of evidence and terminology that's been out there. But, you know, you always notice when people start calling things different again. So we do believe that having consistency and having that main source is really important. And then we've also known it um, from just having, we have frameworks that we use with leaders and with organizations. And that also helps, helps to advance work because you have that common language that you can um, 
really use when you're trying to implement change and have kind of everyone on the same page and common understanding. And then having a common understanding polarities is really helpful because that's the other thing that, um, you know, I brought to the National Academies of Practice was working with the leadership team to even understand what are some of the polarities we have to really know about in our organization, you know, that it's, um, you know, we have to look forward with honoring the tradition of the National Caves of Practice, but also, you know, be innovative and continue to move forward as well. So there's a, there's a lot of examples where that common lexicon or common language is very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this has been one of the biggest barriers to advancing in a professional education and yeah. practice from the very yes. beginning. Mm-hmm. We, not, we have not had a common language. And so, you know, when people were speaking, there wasn't a common understanding about what they were saying. (laughs) Right. So, and then when you think about the professions, to your point, Andrea, right, we all have our own little language going on. Right. And if you're trying to work collaboratively, it's essential that you understand the meaning of what people are saying and what they're bringing to the table. And so, yeah, I think this is phenomenal work and it's been called for for a very long time. Yeah. It'll be fun to continue to grow it forward, and I'm sure we will make changes. Yeah. Well, and even as, you know, in, in writing my dissertation around interprofessional collaborative practice and identity, trying to describe what this is without that common language is one of the points I bring up, right? One of the barriers has been not having a common language. So how do you put that in your in your proposals, in your papers, so that people understand exactly what you're bringing? And every paper that you read, right, they're going over, okay, this is what I mean, <laughs> Because we don't have that common language or redefining it to serve their own needs and their own purposes. So it just, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's really true. Yeah. yeah. I see it as a seed that's been planted. So we'll we'll see where it goes. But congratulations on getting yes, that body of work done to benefit not only the National Academies of Practice, but I think the whole interprofessional community. Well, thank you. It was, as you know, it was a team effort. I just had the, the fun of, of pushing it forward, but it took a lot, lot of work by a lot of people to get that thing written. And we were standing on the shoulders of folks that have gone along before us, right? All those sure. definitions came from somewhere. Sure. Absolutely. Well, that's how everything happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> now we've been talking, you know, about polarities and, you know, that's kind of our our jam, right, is helping yeah. healthcare leaders look at healthcare, interprofessional collaborative practice and education through a different lens. And, you know, we've done a number of presentations, we've published different papers, we did a research study on interprofessional education and collaborative practice as a polarity, that kind of interdependent pair. And we had a couple of episodes actually on healthcare's missing logic around these topics. Number five was on interprofessional education and, mm-hmm. and interprofessional collaborative practice. Why isn't it sustainable? Well, things we've learned, right? You got to manage the polarities to have sustainable uh, outcomes. And then also, Dr. Anthony Breitbach was on our show, and he mm-hmm. shared our experience with him around the research that we did. And that I think was episode number fifteen. Um, why? Uh, what nobody tells you about aligning in a professional education and practice. And so, kind of going back to our points previously about education's been moving forward. Where has practice been, right? And so. Just wondered about your perspectives around these two advancing simultaneously, because one of the things we've learned about polarities is if you don't give attention to both, 
you're going to overfocus on one and end up with some unintended consequences of that. So as we're talking about, you know, kind of bringing these two together, what are your thoughts about how that might happen, how to get more simultaneous action on both? Well, I think it it really does lean into the importance of having that um, practice partner when you're evolving these programs. And I think if I'm not, I loved, I listened to episode five and 15 again just the other day. And I love, I thought episode five did a great job. I guess exactly, that was exactly the takeaway that I, that I leaned into from that is that in, in one of the reasons, quite frankly, that I'm at Ohio State, because it's not, it's not only the Ohio State University health science programs, it's actually the entire university that, it, that is um, pressing in interprofessional and interdisciplinary collaboration, understanding that they're different, but also synergistic. But it's also the Wexner Medical Center. And I spend as much of my time talking about new buildings and new practice plans and, and, and new work that and, and modifying existing work or building on work that's being very successful in this way at the Wexner Medical Center. And so I, I do believe that if we don't have a practice partner as educators, we are building a plane that may not have anywhere to fly. I mean, really, yeah. we're just creating, how can we possibly know what they need and what that, you know, what our patients and clients and communities need if we're not immersed in the practice arena? So um, in a nutshell, that's my answer. That's wonderful. Yeah, that is. That that is. is you're absolutely right, right? Without that partnership and, and structures and processes to support both and measurement. The other element, right, of this is the research, you know, the metrics to measure. How do we know we're making a difference? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that, of course, we fully stand for is you have to measure. If you're not measuring, you have no idea where mm -hmm. you're in. That's right. The progress that you've made, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if you don't even know you're going to the same place, you know, Tracy, it's even hard. I mean, which I honestly think we've done a lot in the last I'll say, let's just use 10 years since we started with that. Um, we've been skating two different pucks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, can you give us some examples of interprofessional models of practice that you've experienced that provide interprofessional collaboration opportunities for both practitioners and learners? And, you know, you already mentioned the how important Wexner Medical Center is uh, in the Ohio State University. Are there any examples in your own home area that you can share with us? Yeah, they, 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 lucky there are, there are several. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to call out just one is what I, I don't want to go down that road of just highlighting, <laughs> highlighting one. Let me talk about a new initiative that, that we're working on that um, is really COVID responsive. And I think um, a good illustration of how we might approach this work going forward. This work is, uh, we call it interprofessional um Community Scholars Program, and we're just beginning it um, right now as we speak. We've did a lot. We've done a lot of work to get ready for it. Where our learners are going into the community um, with family medicine residents and, and eventually advanced nurse practitioner um, students being part of that team, but and as well as other health professions learners working in the community with community health mentors to increase digital literacy, dig digital health literacy skills. So all of the community health mentors um, are seniors who are aging in place in, in an area of Columbus, which is not too far from campus, but is underserved indeed. And each community health mentor gets an iPad and then they work with the teams to, to assess um, what they need and set goals and then integrate digital technology and other resources to meet the gaps in service or um, 
or resources that they need. And so that's a really exciting initiative where, you know, telehealth, we all were bolted into the telehealth world like overnight. And thankfully, many, many, if not most of us were able to move that forward. Even some of the interprofessional education initiatives across the country framed their their changes around um, telehealth visits. But the fact is many, many patients um, were not and clients were not trained in how to be, how to advocate for themselves. I mean, if I'm talking to my healthcare provider by phone, then I'm, I can easily fall into the, what do you need from me mentality and not use the time to really proactively um, ask questions that I have, clarify, or even plan for health needs that the, the provider may not know anything about. And so that's a really good example of a need that existed in the community with telehealth visits being very common, especially early in COVID. Uh, many of those folks had iPhones or, or, or had a, you know, a, a smartphone, I guess I should say, um, but they really had used it in this application. And so teams of students, not coming from any one professional background, but several could address not only the people living in the community needs, but also if they had pet needs, for example. So even our veterinary medicine program um, can participate in this work. And we hope this is a long-term partnership that next year will involve, you know, several hundred community members um, and we'll continue to understand their needs and build on that to meet their needs with our interprofessional teams. What a great example. Yeah, yeah, telehealth is certainly one of the innovations or, you know, advancements, I should say. It wasn't innovation because it's been there, but like I think it's been catapulted to your point, right? For mm -hmm. Exactly. exactly. And that's a great example of, of um, meeting the needs of the community, but also an example of kind of team innovation and how we're coming, how they're coming together. Are there any other examples of kind of how team innovation has occurred as a result of COVID that you have experienced? Well, I would certainly call the way that we modified um, many initiatives in the, in, to fall within the guidelines and, and by necessity that COVID imposed on us. So there, um, much of healthcare became not so much face-to-face -face anymore. How how we are pushing out the vaccine is very much an interprofessional initiative and learners are, are at the, at, in many cases, delivering the vaccines. At least I know um, in Indianapolis of, of one situation where pharmacy learners are one, a big part of the workforce that are delivering the vac vaccines mm -hmm. um, in one hospital. So um, other changes, I guess, let me see if I can think about some other things that have happened. I think we've drastically modified the way that we understand how we use face-to-face -face learning and where people need to be in order to work together. Um, and so um, lots of changes around how many people constitute a class or a course or a, an experience, how many people can be on a, on a team involved in a care plan for a patient. Um, many, I know many initiatives were already using Zoom or many places were already using Zoom for family care plans and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's, Listening to you, it's, it makes you really appreciate all the fundamental foundational work that was done before. Yeah. Can you imagine scrambling to do this if you didn't have interprofessional competencies and some of the foundational work that you've been doing to make all of a sudden making these decisions of what is the right thing, the best thing to do right now for everybody, faculty, mm -hmm. students, the community. And it just mm -hmm. really makes you appreciate while not maybe perfect, it's like so much great work has been done to be ready for this moment at the same time. 
Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and at the same time, I at the beginning of the of the COVID um, pandemic, I was concerned that we hadn't, and I still think we hadn't quite built the infrastructure out at, as much as we could have to have met the needs. So things like contact tracing, um, could we have, you know, and I'm, that's not to say that there were places in the country where learners were part of the contact tracing initiative um, and, and here to some extent as well. But what if we'd really had a robust infrastructure that would enable us to mobilize all of these health science, health professions learners um, to meet whatever the need was that was coming up. And again, there were important things that were happening, you know, graduating nursing students um, and, and medical students so that they could get out into the field, graduating them early. Um, lots and lots of really good work was happening. But what if what if we had perfected it just to another level where we could really be responsive to the community needs um, on a more systematic way, in a more systemic mm -hmm. way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, asking the right questions is how we move forward, right? So those are great yep. questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, here's the million dollar question. <laughs> Andrea, if you were to jump forward 10 years from now, what would be a dream of yours come true for interprofessional health care? For interprofessional healthcare, oh, uh, clearly, where team practice, uh, integrated team practice, is is the standard. The mm -hmm. not just the gold standard; it is the standard. It's where we start, and we are refining what we're doing. And patients, and communities, and and clients are at the table helping us design that new system. Not just design it, but they're part of its ongoing. You know that we're just constantly refining what we're doing, and we're much more engaged with the people that we're serving in the end, and with our patients, including animals. Um, all of our learners are integrated into that thinking. So instead of them being um, trained in their in their educational programs and then they go out into the community, and I know there are there experiential learning, there is experiential learning in between, but they're actually at the table throughout their training as part of the thinkers, because that's where a lot of our good, you know, good energy and really good new ideas are happening. And they're good critical thinkers. And they look at things and ask good questions. So the learners are, are not an add-on or a bonus. They are integrated into the healthcare delivery system. Wonderful vision. Setting us up. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. Let's well, that's what that we're driving for. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Wow. We're wrapping up, closing up our conversation with you today, Andrew. It's just, I think um, I probably feel more hopeful today than I have in a long time around interprofessional education oh. and practice. So I just want to say that. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways is thank you for helping us pause, step back, look at the progress that's been made. Some of the challenges still in front of us, but just, you know, I think with your leadership, other leaders like you in the country that are really moving this forward, continuing to be vigilant to your point earlier today, um, I think there's a lot of hope and I think we'll have a lot more progress. I think, you know, what's in motion will stay in motion. I think we finally got that momentum going after all these years. And so I'm very hopeful that that we'll see even more advancements. Um, and thank you so much for everything you've done to make that happen. You're quite welcome. Yeah. And Andrea, I'm just thrilled to be with you today. And I agree with Tracy. I think it's an interview that has filled me with hope as well. And, um, you know, I always pay attention to different things that I really connect with. And Tracy knows this about me. And I've been following Andrea Feifel for a long time. <laughs> and sometimes you don't even know why. Like, I didn't know you. 
But it's been a journey and it's been so much fun today to learn things about your journey I never knew before. And um, I think um, I also am walking away with just, uh, I think really being with an inspirational leader that just has made her path through a lot of listening to yourself. Um, and it's, it's been fun to watch you even move around the country in these different positions. And I just have to close by saying as the past president of the National Academy of Practice, I am so thrilled that you are the president elect <laughs> soon to be, <laughs> because it's, um, it is going to be about advocacy. It's going to be about bringing a strong voice of how important interprofessional education and collaborative practice is going to be. And so that's exciting as well. Of That's unfinished work too. So thank you so much. You are yeah. very welcome. It's been fun. Yeah. Any last words you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, I just thought of a few, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold back. <laughs> I think, you know, just, you know, I, I guess I do. Um, I just want to say, keep, keep fighting the fight. We're getting there. We have, we are making a difference. Our learners are thinking differently and they're going to help us shape the future. And I'm really excited about the opportunities that are in front of us with the digital, um, the digital technology and, and really expanding our understanding to where care is delivered to take it outside of four walls and really deliver it um, in a virtual environment. This is really important work that we'll be able to move forward in the future. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to this episode. And we will see you next time. So stay safe and healthy yes. and strong. Yes, thank you. Bye, everyone. See you Bye. next time. Thanks, as always, for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com, and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.